If you see something that is 10% better than what's already in the marketplace, customers are going to buy from the existing vendors. You got to be 50 to 100% better. Capital can actually make things complicated. I mean, it's like more money, more problems. You do sort of unnatural things. Yeah, I was like, all right, let's start raising money. And then the product didn't sell as fast as we wanted to. So we got to go raise more money. And then the product still wasn't done. So we got to raise more money. But good things were happening along the way. Welcome back to Zero to IPO, a podcast where we look at what it takes to take an idea, Freddie, yep. all the way to what? IPO. To IPO. Yes, I won. I <laughs> yeah. got it right. All right. Yeah, it's not that it's not that surprising given the title. <laughs> I'm Joshua Davis I'm and Frederick, this and this guy over here. <laughs> I'm Frederick Harris. <laughs> he's the COO of Okta. And I'm not sure what he does, but he's in the studio with me. <laughs> and he's the co-founder of Epic Magazine and uh, contributing editor at Wired. <laughs> you figured it out. It only took 8 episodes. <laughs> Well, today on the episode, we're going to be looking at a difficult point in a company's growth. Difficult, but key. It's the point when you have taken on VC funding. You're hooked on the capital. You're hooked on the capital, and the capital expects a return, Freddie, right? That's right. You're not talking about the angel round anymore, Josh. You're not talking about friends and family. You're not talking about your parents who are going to love you whether you succeed or not. You're talking about professional investors, folks who are money managers. They get money from large LPs, limited partners, and their job is to invest it in companies like yours and find outsized returns over the next two, three, five, ten 10 years. They are in the home run game. If you look at a VC portfolio, if they make investments in 10 companies, they assume five or six are going to go out of business, and they hope two or three might return the money. But what they're looking for is the grand slam. They're looking for the 10x, the 50x, the 100x. They're in the home run game. So today on the episode, we're going to drill down into this complicated stage in a, in a company's growth. We've got folks who have been the entrepreneur, who have taken the money. We also have folks who at the same time have at another point in their career been the investor, giving the money. So you're really going to get all the perspectives around the table today. We've got Anil Bushri from Workday. We've got Josh James from Domo. Julia Hartz, the CEO of Eventbrite. And Fred Luddy, the founding CEO of ServiceNow. First up this week, Anil Bushri. Anil Bushri is the CEO, chairman, and co-founder of enterprise software giant Workday, and a former partner, now advisor at the legendary venture capital firm, Greylock. He's invested in everything from Domo to Okta and currently serves as a board member at Intel. So how do you stand out to someone like Anil? We'll let him tell it, first from his perspective as an entrepreneur, and then from his perspective as an investor, and why he left one for the other. We did a, a raise with Allen & Company. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did one- What year pre- was this? This was 2011. We did a raise in a, a year before we went public with um, basically public market investors. And uh, um, you know the Allen Company guys, they're, they're fantastic. And uh, they introduced us to Fidelity and T. Rowe and, uh, and Jeff Bezos, which is one of my you know, great experiences in my life to meet, to meet and spend time with him. Uh, and so we actually did a, a pre-IPO round with IPO investors. And uh, that must and, have been one of the first times that that was happening. Now it's commonplace. Now it's commonplace, but, but it was early then. It was especially early then. For, for an enterprise company. Yeah. And Henry Ellenbogen ended up being a, a, a board member attendee, and he really helped us think through how to get ready to go public. Going, going public is it is a big deal in terms of dealing with a new constituency, public investors, and he really helped us understand what 
what we should be sharing, how we should how we should work with them to make sure they felt like real partners in the business. What does that look like? What are some of the high level takeaways? That's a pretty good advisor to have yeah, do I mean, that, by yeah. the way. Uh, the takeaway is just figure out the figure out the metrics that really drive your business and um, help help the investors understand how you're going to run your business based on these metrics. Help them understand your timetable of profitability. Be out be out ahead of of how you're going to run the business. Don't surprise them on a on a, a regular basis. The surprises happen anyways because you know we all try to run the business on a quarterly basis, but it's it's hard yep. at times, right? So he he helped us come up with the model that we use to to really manage manage our, the expectations with Wall Street on how, what we would execute like as a public company. Let's talk about raising money. We've talked to people who haven't taken money for, you know, bootstrapped it for You're a period like of time. You're like ultimate expert at understanding all the different sides of how this works. You did it as a very successful investor. You did it as someone who backed a bunch of companies who then ended up going public themselves. What's the number one misconception that people have about raising money in enterprise software? Let's start there. About raising money in enterprise software. Does it have to be enterprise software? No, yeah, no, fine, uh, fine. Just software in general. Yeah. Um, I don't know about misconceptions, mis but I would say that what I was always looking for was disruptive technology. If you see something that is 10% better than what's already in the marketplace, customers are going to buy from the existing vendors. Right. You got to be 50 to 100% better. You got to give somebody a massive improvement on value proposition. And that usually comes out of disruptive technology. So there are businesses that have been built that have done well without disruptive technology. But if you look at the ones that have really scaled and turned into large companies, it's all been around, around really unique disruptive technology, whether it's uh, you know data domain with a different storage algorithm, pure storage, bringing flash down to a price point that was better than disk, but a lot more performance because of, of brilliant software. Okta reinventing the world of identity, um, you know, Cloudera inventing the world of big data. These are all just big, heavy problems to solve. And I think that that as uh, both an entrepreneur and as an investor, I've always thought if it's not really hard to do, it's not worth doing. Because that was going to be another question. You had so much success early on before you even started Workday. It could have been a nice life. <laughs> Just to like sit there and be, I know you're a, a yeah. very, you're a very accomplished and avid golfer. You, you could have just spent more time golfing. I mean, there's just a lot of things you could have done before saying, hey, I have an idea. Yeah. I'm going to go build another giant Fortune well, 500 company from scratch. I, I don't think it would have happened if it wasn't for, for my relationship and friendship with Dave Duffield and the Oracle Takeover. I've never really sought out to be CEO. I just, I really loved working with Dave. He is he is an amazing guy. He's been my he's been my mentor and business partner now for uh, 20, 20. 25 years, and we've never we talk we joke about it. we've never had an argument. We, we just never have. We have our Chardonnay dinners where we sit down and we talk through the issues, and if we don't agree, we get to our second ball of Chardonnay, and by then we we always agree. <laughs> <laughs> but he's 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 one of the great entrepreneurs in the history of this industry, and one of the nicest human beings. So. During the hostile takeover, the board brought Dave and I out of retirement. Dave out of retirement, me from Greylock, and uh, and um, we had so much fun working together at PeopleSoft during a hostile takeover that when it came to an end, that just didn't that just didn't seem right. So this, we we, we got to keep this going. And, and so what you what what was animating it, perhaps as much as the idea of the business was just your friendship. Oh, I'm more, you, it was more about working with Dave than it was about the idea. 
I mean, the, the, the idea, the, the idea to, to start a company with your mentor and this legendary guy who happens to be, you know, your best friend, uh, that that's not going to come off, come very often. That opportunity is not going to come very often. And, you know, I told my, my friends at Greylock, I got to go do this. I just, I just have to do this. This, this is, this but, is important to but me. But I mean, you were already just so successful at that point. Was there any, did you have any concern or fear? Like, what if I, what if this doesn't work? What if I'm not successful? What if, uh, never. Just comp, just didn't even cross no, your I mind. No, I mean, you know, it definitely crossed my mind. Like I'm leaving a pretty cush job as <laughs> yeah, a venture capitalist. I mean, let's be honest. And then, I have a lot of friends who are venture capitalists. They do not work as hard as, as entrepreneurs. I don't think even the venture capitalists would argue that. No. My friend used to tease me when, I, when I'd be having a breakfast or a lunch with an entrepreneur. I was like, is that your work? I said, yeah, it's, it's hard. <laughs> then I forgot. I'm like, no, actually, that was pretty cush. Uh, Especially in like 2007. Yeah, no, it was. The, the Fortune 500 customers were not coming. There was never a day where you're like, oh, man. I, I enjoyed my time at Greylock. I love my partners at Greylock. Dave Z is one of my closest friends. Yeah. Legendary investor. Yep. Uh, Reed Hoffman. Yeah. Very close friend. But I'm, I'm more naturally an entrepreneur and operator. And uh, while I enjoyed that time, I had more I wanted to do. And then the work, the opportunity presented itself. There are a couple things, Freddie, that I think are particularly interesting about what Anil said. The first is this idea of kind of controlling the narrative when you're talking to investors and, and showing them the metrics that are important and saying, look, okay, of course, a PL is important, but there are actually other ways to analyze and judge the business. Not only that, Josh, but you have to show them what these new metrics are. P&L's been around as long as there have been businesses. You're innovating. You're creating something brand new. You've got all these new metrics. You have to explain to them how to think the way you think. And if you do it right, this can be a huge asset because you are helping educate a set of investors on a new market that you're creating, which by default means you become the source of truth on what's going to happen in this market and how people should think about it. I will say, Freddie, that it sounds a lot nicer to be the one giving the money away than the one asking for it. You think about a cushy job giving away money, which is what a venture capital does, and they've got, you know, uh, they don't have to worry about keeping the lights on in quite the same way and making payroll and all these crazy things that entrepreneurs does. And, and yet, here he is again, starting all over as an entrepreneur. It's great to see Anil leave what we call the dark side and come back to the light. And it just goes to show it's not all that bad to be an entrepreneur. So we've covered how to find the right VC and how to get their attention. But now let's get into some more of the nitty gritty. How much money should you be asking for once you get in the room? The first round, the second round, your third round. How should you spend it once you get it? And once you start getting VC funding, are you painting yourself into a corner? Our next guest doesn't think so. Domo founder and Omniture co-founder Josh James has never shied away from raising as much money as possible when building up a company. So how does Josh do it? And why does he do it? As it turns out, it might at least in part be paranoia. Let's look at some of the nut, nuts and bolts stuff here. Um, VC funding, the blessing and the curse of it. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the analysis. Like once you accept that money, can you ever stop? Does it, is the die cast? Is your future foretold at that point? I don't think so. 
um, you might be asking that reference to us. That's not why we kept raising money. Um, but we made a decision early on that when I realized this wasn't going to be just building a dashboard that you could put on your phone and get your data and it would magically happen because everyone's storing their data in their boxes and they can just easily pipe it in. As soon as we realized how hard it was going to be, it was like, all right, well, what I don't want to have happen is I go slow and then the big companies come in and we end up being insignificant. That that's the worst possible case scenario for me. So and that was, you were, that was, a, you were really worried about that. You thought that could happen. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm probably more paranoid than I should be about that kind of stuff. And I try not to be too worried about competition, but yeah, I definitely think about it a lot. So yeah, I was like, all right, let's start raising money. And then the product didn't sell as fast as we wanted to. So we got to go raise more money. And then the product still wasn't done. We got to raise more money, but good things were happening along the way. So instead of like cutting to profitability and then saying, here's what the company is, we still kept on getting really encouraging signs. Like, I mean, I literally had the CEO of a fortune 50 company that logs into our product like three to 17 times a day. And, you know, you, and I know him and I know how he uses the product and it changes the way they run their business. And so, you know, that, seeing that kind of stuff makes it so that you can be like, okay, we're going to bet more. People I don't think, get I think it, you need to charge that person more. Yeah. We need to charge more. That's true. We need to charge make per use. That, <laughs> that reps quota just went up. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hear that Mark? <laughs> so this idea that, I mean, I, I wasn't actually asking specifically. Uh, I know you weren't, yeah, but, but, it's still. but it's this idea that I think here in the Valley, um, when you're starting out, you're like, the only thing you want is to get a VC to believe in you. Um, but at the same time, that comes with trade-offs. Well, yeah. you know, because there are some previous VCs that you had at Omniture who you thought were uh, very valuable. And there are probably some that you thought were a little less valuable. And I, and I know that some of them that were very valuable, you said, hey, I really would like your help and your support in starting Domo and getting it going. And so clearly there are partnerships that can be very valuable to you. Yeah, I, I really like having a VC involved, at least for me, because they, A, they know things you don't know, B, they harp on stuff that bugs the heck out of you, but generally you need to pay more attention to it and figure it out. And so as long as, and it seems like most term sheets nowadays are a lot better than they were 15 years ago, balance of power is more equal. Um, and I think as long as that balance of power is equal, it's a really positive thing. Um, I have had companies that I've run or I've been co-founder of um, that we've never taken any VC funding and they're doing really well. And that's a, that's a way to do it. But Omniture, I had to raise the money or I couldn't grow. And Domo, we could have, I could have started it and kept it small and just did one piece of technology at a time, but we felt like the platform required investment. So I think as long as you need it and there's, you're going to get a good return on it. Cause what I think, one thing I think is funny is like the worst thing is to take the dilution and then not go after it. Yeah. Like you Just sit get on value. the money. Yeah, like yeah. that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. So you got to make the choice one way or the other. But um, yeah, keeping that discipline is definitely hard. Once you take that money to be as disciplined as you are when it's all your money, that's definitely more difficult. Not all entrepreneurs are on the same page as Josh when it comes to sitting on money. Was that true for you, Freddie? Did you say, you know what? Uh, people are offering us more money, but we're not going to take it. It's actually a pretty funny story. When we raised our Series A, Josh, we went down and talked to a couple of our existing investors from the seed round, and they said, we'd love to catch up with you. And we went down there and we said, look, we'd love to raise $7 million for a Series A. 
And they said, well, that's great. We really like what you're doing. What, what could you do with more money? Come back and see us in a week. That's a pretty nice question. So it was great. So then we went down the following week, exactly seven days later, and said, well, we'd now like to raise $12 million, but we'd increased the pre-money valuation such that for $12 million, they were getting actually the exact same ownership percentage as they were for $7 million a week before. And did I they remember, catch it? Yes, they did. One of the investors <laughs> just started laughing and looked at me and said, how did you create that much shareholder value in the last week? In the last seven days. In the last seven days. <laughs> so uh, we split it in the middle and raised a $10 million Series A. Julia and Kevin Hartz, Josh, they are the power couple who co-founded the online, uh, now super giant ticketing company, Eventbrite. In the early days of the company, uh, they actually raised as little money as they possibly could to get the company up and running. Here's Julia to tell us what happened. There's great virtue in being uh, incredibly scrappy. And I don't know that Eventbrite would have made it had we poured a bunch of money into it. One of the reasons why we did that, though, is because Zoom needed an intense amount of capital right off the bat. Because in order to get, I mean, this is this is online international money transfer post 9-11. So in order to get the licenses to do that, you had to have millions of dollars on your balance sheet. So they needed to raise money right away and a lot of it. And Sequoia really stepped up. Kevin had this sort of academic decision of, hey, why don't we try it the other way? You know, And and so we didn't have a ton of money, but we just were really judicious about how we spent it. And I don't know that we would have created the business model we have today if we had surplus cash to spend on acquiring customers. Right. What what might it have looked like had you had that? You know, what would it, have been different? It would have been a sales-driven model. So the brilliance of the Eventbrite model is that 97% of event creators sign up on their on their own. And they're driving over 50% of the revenue. So this is not like- It's not know, advertising based. It's not just all free creators. It's not, and it's not ad based. And our transaction revenue model means that our interests are aligned with theirs. Yep. We only make money when they sell tickets. And as they get better and better and grow more and more and their things are more and more successful, that aligns with how you exactly. end up being successful. Yep. And the average net revenue per ticket is $3. Is that right? So- being able to offer this scaled service at a very affordable price meant that we were able to amass, uh, you know, the largest number of creators and events on the platform in the world. I don't think we would be where we are today if we had, if we were flush with cash. I mean, it's hard to say because obviously, you know, you don't know, but and some of it, a lot of it comes down to founder DNA, but I just think that that was a major difference in the model and a huge competitive advantage for us today because there is no other scaled ticketing platform that's, that is fueled by self-sign-on growth. And so that's two things. First of all, that means that the products that you're designing are very clearly for the right users because you're you're doing it because they're the ones that are requiring them and requesting them and kind of going back and forth. And number two, you're not getting any false positives. Because with a sales early on, especially, it's like, well, who's listening to me? Who did I talk to? Who did I happen to get on the phone? And then you could end up having actually this diagram of who you think the customers are that's actually different than who your target customer should be. Exactly. And I don't want to demonize capital because obviously Sequoia came in and made a huge difference yeah. in turning an idea or a business into a company and a scaled vision. And certainly along the way, people like Lee Fixel at Tiger and Ruloff at Sequoia and Henry at Tiro have been super influential in helping us get to that next inflection point of scale. But I think at the beginning, 
you know, we, that there's just this, it's capital can actually make things complicated. I mean, it's like more money, more problems. Like you just, you do sort of unnatural things or you grow it all costs and figure you're going to figure it out later. And, you know, one of the things that I'm most proud of, especially sitting here, you know, thinking about, about the future is, um, we have a very durable business model and, um, you know, I do Pilates, so it's like all about the power core. Eventbrite has a power core that is not easily disrupted. And that's really in our, in the business model and how efficient we can run our business and offer low prices to event creators and help them be successful. Because if you put too much capital in the system too, do you think that sometimes it might generate um, bad behavior or you might get used to the wrong things or it might not create the right discipline that you need and other things? Absolutely. It's it's human nature. I mean, if you looked at our gross profit or in the early days, I guess we didn't have much gross profit, but like re yeah. <laughs> revenue per employee, um, if you looked at any sort of efficiency metric per person, right? Headcount for us is is the majority of our opex, um, and you tr and you mapped it to the points in time that we raised capital after our first institutional round. Our efficiency dipped immediate in the quarters immediately after. Right. So, um, like that is just it. I'm not saying Eventbrite is exceptional uh, one way or the other on that. I think we're pretty much the norm, and human nature is to become slightly less efficient when you have more capital. And so I guess the, the, the worry that I, that I have or what I see, you know, Ke Kevin's very, very involved in, in early stage investing. Um, I just get worried about the rush to grab the capital while the capital's there. And so, and then I also, I get, I get very interested when the market head fakes and to see who flinches. Cause you can really see, especially in our world and um, on the competitive front, you really see who doesn't actually have depth to their business and who who's kind of trying to just drive top line growth with no, no profitability on the horizon or, you know, durability in the model. We, uh, with other guests on the show, have talked about the idea of getting addicted to the capital where once you start taking VC money, they're going to expect you to do something with it, first of all. Yep. And second, that there's going to be another round and another round and another round until there's some kind of exit. Um, to what extent did you feel like you were getting on that treadmill? Well, no, we totally did that. I mean, I'll be the first to say that, you know, we had this like virtuous uh, first three years and then, you know, we got turned down. So 27 no's in 2008. Not we, that you counted, but if you had counted, it would have been 27. 27. Yeah, right. Um, and, uh, and that was, that was an experience, like one that I would, I would definitely want for every entrepreneur. Cause that, that really like deepens, either deepens your conviction or totally guts you. Um, and for us, it deepened our conviction that we, why did it deepen our conviction? Well, we felt that we were onto something that people couldn't see yet. And we also knew it was an incredibly terrible time to raise money. But we figured if we could survive in 2009, we would really show that durability and that staying power. And we did. And our we had one of our best years in 2009, obviously early days, small base. But we really dug in. The next time we had a year like that was 2017 when we had stacked hands at the end of 2016 and said, this is it, we're going to run pr profitably. Like this, the, it's, uh, as I like to put it, it's not cute anymore to not be profitable. Like we, it, and what happened between 2009 and 2017? 
we raised a bunch of capital. So we raised from Sequoia. That's like getting the seal of approval, right? Then all of a sudden, everybody else who said no was like, wait a minute. What, like, how can we what get in? We miss? We yeah, miss? Wait, what did oh, we miss? What are you doing next week? We'd love yeah. to have you come in. Actually, I'm going to be in your neighborhood. Why don't I, I come to your office now? <laughs> we didn't and mean so no. There's like this follow-on effect to um, having a, a firm like Sequoia invest in your business. And I believe that's as important today as, as it was back then. Um, then there's, then there's like the monster rounds, right? And there's sort of like, for us, it was thinking about how do we, how do we go from predominantly domestic to international? How do we start to drive a marketplace dynamic? Um, and then as we started to get closer and closer to the profile of a public company, then it was about, well, who would, who has, who sees Eventbrite as a potentially successful public company and would like to get in earlier than when we go public. And so there were these different phases of capital raise, but ultimately we, we raised about 200 million in capital along the way. We raised technically more than that, but that was the, the last tranche, literally a series G because the Hartzes had done sort of A through B, but a series G, if you will, it exists. Um, we raised to acquire Ticketfly, which was our largest North American competitor in music. Um, so had I done it all over again, we would have raised less capital, to be honest. Why do you say that? I think that scarcity breeds creativity and frankly, faster innovation. And so- I don't know how much less I would have raised, but I certainly see now that we are making something novel, which is called free cash flow, um, the brilliance of the model. And, and, and I think that with more capital, we actually weren't making the model much more brilliant. We were expanding faster, which of course put us on track to, you know, be generating the, you know, revenue that we see today. But in terms of the, the, that power core that I talked about, I don't know that capital was the way to, the path to prosperity for us in, in, in creating a, a durable and defensible business model. You said that efficiency went down after each round. After each round, you can see the two quarters following efficiency went down because we hired more people. So I don't feel that headcount is a marker of success. Anyone can hire a bunch of people. I mean, and you know, I think what you do with the people and how you scale the company, I think it's cooler to have fewer people and be doing bigger things. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I sort of have this love hate relationship because of course being a, being like a people person who has, you know, helped to build this culture. I obviously fundamentally believe that recruiting is the most important thing you can do or you have to do, uh, to be successful and build a great company. But I also feel that headcount's not a measurement of success. It's not a proxy. No. To me, it's fascinating, Freddie, that we're hearing like completely opposite perspectives. You hear Josh James talk about raise as much money as you can. You hear Julia talk about raise as little as you can. It seems like you should be doing whatever you think is best for your business. This is, again, about being genuine and being true to yourself and what you believe as an entrepreneur for you, your business, your market, all these things. Julia says, I don't know that we would have created the business model we have today if we had surplus cash to spend on acquiring customers. Not over-raising helped her build the business. Yeah, I think it made her focus. It made her really key in on what mattered to whom and how and what business problems they were going to solve. 
So how do you know as an entrepreneur when you should say no to a ton of cash, uh, especially when people are ready to give you more? Well, it can't be easy, Josh. Our last guest is a master of saying no. We've heard from the great Fred Luddy a few times before on this podcast. Today, he's back to talk about cold, hard cash and why he walked away from a billion-dollar-plus acquisition offer before his company service now went public with a little guidance from Sequoia Capital's Doug Leone. And here's a hint. It's because his company was worth much more. Before IPO, uh, you had an acquisition offer at $2.5 billion, and you said no. Yeah, well, it wasn't quite that rich. That story's gotten embroidered several times. It was one point five billion. Okay, so you had an acquisition offer at one. Well, you had a number of acquisition offers, including one that was north of a billion dollars. We had many unsolicited term sheets. Our business was never for sale. In fact, the first time, and I think this is very good advice, the first time we were asked what our exit strategy was, we didn't know what an exit strategy was. And we didn't know what the answer should be. And our answer to this unknown question was simple. We plan on having happy customers and making a reasonable profit. And we think everything else will take care of itself. And I think that that is is the right answer for exit strategy. You didn't know what a billion dollars was. I still did not at that point know what a billion dollars was until this offer came in. Okay, so this offer comes in. North of a billion dollars. Let's say north of a billion dollars. That's an unbelievable amount of money. Well, Particularly because when you started, you're looking at like, you had $2 million of revenue. And then when four. I, when and I then started, Deutsch comes in. When I started, I had 36 months of runway until the plane went off. And now someone was saying, here's north of a billion dollars for your And business. you say no. I didn't say no. <laughs> I owned 36% of the company at that point. Uh, that was Christmas time, 2010. Would have been a good Christmas bonus. I, <laughs> <laughs> that was not I, lost on you. No, I thought, I thought about, well, what do I need? Again, this guy doesn't know what a billion dollars is. And what can I do for all my family, right? All of them. And then all your friends. And I thought, I had $35 million at Peregrine, and it went to zero. So this could also go to zero. This is a bird in the hand. Yes. And so I very much wanted to take it. And we got on a, several board calls. And, I, and there's, oh, you know, it's your company. We'll do what, we, what you want. You know, and Leone. From Sequoia. So your venture capital Sequoia, backer. Yes. And your largest backer. Yes. And um, he's an excellent French speaker. And he said, Fred, you're getting fucked. <laughs> excuse me they're and, giving you over a billion dollars and you're getting fucked yeah and he repeated it you're the largest shareholder at yeah, that point uh, at 36 percent i'm you know, definitely the largest shareholder so uh what happened in the ensuing hours was all on the phone by the way uh, there was several phone calls some more some with more people than than fewer I was walking my son. Uh, he was born in, in, in 2008. He could barely walk. So I was walking him with his little, he's holding my little pinky. Big We're guy. out on a horse trail in Rancho Santa Fe and Leone calls me. He goes, Fred. You're on the phone. You're on a cell phone. I'm talking. Yeah. I'm, 
got my son. I have my BlackBerry, calls me on the BlackBerry. He said, Fred, if you just need a check for $100 million, I'll write you a check for $100 million, right? Do not sell this company. Do not sell this company. It's a 10-bagger. What's a 10-bagger? $10 billion, Fred, $10 billion. And then- uh, Pat- A 10-bagger. Have you heard that? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> and then Pat Grady puts together- why it's why it's a ten bagger? And who's Pat Grady? Pat Grady uh, is a super bright guy that works at, at Sequoia. He's been on my board for five years and has been instrumental in our success. He just keeps saying ten bagger. <laughs> That's what Sequoia. Does. It's probably a hundred bagger now, but since I've been out of the business. But anyway, what they did was they said, "Here's the enterprise software world. Part of it has tipped to SaaS, right? Salesforce was on one side of the tipping point. I forget who else was, and part of it's about to tip." HR is about to tip with Workday. All these sectors of, of big companies are going to move into the cloud. That's what they're saying. To correct, you. correct. And you are ideally positioned. Yes. So don't cash out now. Correct. And um, the thing is that uh, there, there were a lot of parameters around that. But at the end, you know, the, at the end, Doug was right. I was resentful because I thought, well, this guy's worth billions of dollars. It's pretty easy for him to say that, right? right. You know, I was broke. I've been broke many times, right? I've had cars repossessed. I've had my electricity turned off. Like, that's not a pleasant feeling. He flies down to meet me in his Gulfstream, you know? Uh, you know, the thrill for me is driving out to meet him at the Gulfstream, at his Gulfstream. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we live in a different planet, right? So it's between you and Doug. It's just between me and Doug. And this is all over one afternoon. It was a very short period of time and it was Christmas time. So it's, you know, it's a hyper, hyper emotional time, right? You know, and you got my two and a half year old son, you know, I'm walking along the horse trails. And eventually they just decided like, okay, um, I buy into Pat Grady's thesis. I don't need a hundred million dollars because I don't know what I'd do with it. Um, you know, I had loftier objectives than that at, at that point, honestly. And um, so when you say loftier objectives, you mean in terms of like your ambitions for your own life? Correct. What was motivating you? It, what was motivating me? Yeah, or what Why? was, you said you had loftier ambitions. What were you, Well, but you bought into Pat's theory. There, there were two things. Number one was this, okay, this can be something. And again, I don't, I'm not a great believer in, in technology companies as investments because I've watched so many people invest, especially in hardware and hardware companies, they're like fruit flies, right? They have very short lives. And to build an enduring technology company, one that lasts over 10 years, that's a huge deal. You can be you can be a zenith, you know, in year three or four, and you can be gone, absolutely gone off the face of the planet, you know, in year five or six. And uh, so I was acutely aware of this as well. But Goldman Sachs had written some paper where they said, you know, on, on average, we think that SaaS businesses in the enterprise space are going to keep their customers on average 17 years. How they knew this when SaaS just started, I have no idea, but that number stuck in my head and I thought, wow, we still have some of our original customers. So that's right. So And we, Grady had said that to you. Yes. And so we thought this can actually build into a corporation of enduring value. And what a great thing it will have been to have been part of building something that has enduring value. As opposed to being acquired and just becoming a piece in somebody else's Yes. World. Yes. And just being like, well, he's the lucky guy next door that doesn't have to mow his own lawn. You know, I don't know what he did. But he must have done something at some point. And, and now, you know, you're part of a company where people, you know, are happy that, hey, 
we use ServiceNow or, you know, my, my friend works at ServiceNow or. I'm a very happy ServiceNow customer. <laughs> and you were willing. <laughs> I mean, but that's a, that's a tough calculus that you made that decision on that day where you're like, I'm going to risk it all. I again, mean, again, I mean, granted, it seemed like things were going very well, but you never know. You never know. You never know. It could have gone to zero. It could have gone down. There's, there's that opportunity could not have come back. And it was a decision I resented. (laughs) You weren't (laughs) happy about it. No, I wasn't happy about it because I still had bills, right? I still had payments to make. I still had a mortgage. You just walked away from a hundred million dollars in cash. My sister's still living in her rental condo, you know, and, and she, you know, she is working at the company at the time. She, she had stock as well. Right. So our lives didn't materially change with that decision. We knew that they could have, but they didn't. And I had announced this, by the way, to my entire family. They knew. They knew you made it because, well, first of all, it's Christmas, so you're all together. Yeah, that's what you say. Like, yeah. And here's here's congratulations. Good- <laughs> you're not getting my present to you. My present to you is not getting the company sold and your cash. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, I'm greatly relieving you of significant tax burden. That's <laughs> yeah. the kind yeah, of brother I am. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, we 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 went forward, but I was very very resentful, and um, then we, you know start thinking about, okay, now we're going to be going into the IPO. And we're th- so Frank was hired to do the operational effectiveness, but get, get the company public. 2010, and you went public in 2012. We went public on June 29th of 2012. <laughs> What's a 10-bagger, Josh? <laughs> I've never it's heard that before. It's $10 billion, dollars, Fred. It's $10 billion. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't know. For, for me, I, I'm actually imagining 10 bags. That's when I give you $10 and you give me $100 back. That's right. a typical 10 bag. That, that's, that's, that's your version that's of it. That's my version of 10 Fred bagger. Luddy's version of it is $10 billion. <laughs> that's right. So the question that we've been struggling with in this episode is whether or not to take money, how to take money, and how much of it to take. I think, Josh, what gets lost in the echo chambers of Silicon Valley and beyond is that venture capital is a great way of building your technology startup, but there are other ways, and people forget that. You can, for example, build a cash flow business, or you can build a business and raise just a little bit amount of money with the goal to sell the company a couple years down the road. If you are looking, however, to build a long-term, independent, sustainable, impactful technology company over years and years and decades, venture capital is oftentimes the preferred way of going about that. One of the things that always surprises me about Silicon Valley is that you have all these businesses that are losing massive amounts of money, and they're fueled by round after round of investment. Uh, And so I do think that it's important to keep in mind, hey, start and run a business that can make money. That's one solution. No. No. Totally disagree. No one's going to be interested in that. Well, on that note, this has been Zero WO, <laughs> a podcast about how successful entrepreneurs got from that first big win to all the other big wins after it. Special thanks to our guests, Anil Bushri, Josh James, Julia Hartz, and Fred Luddy for taking the time to talk with us today. And to the Martin Trust Center for MIT Entrepreneurship for collaborating with Okta to bring this podcast to life. And if you like what you've heard and want to know more, check out exclusive in-depth stories from each episode on fastcompany.com. 
And to hear the next step in taking a company from zero to IPO, make sure to subscribe and give us a good rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Frederick Karras. And I'm Joshua Davis. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode, Keeping It Fresh. It's not good to have a business model where you give everything away for free, and that's it. Don't recommend it. 